you can go ahead and open up your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. That's where we're going to take a look this morning. Appearances are just exactly what they seem to be. So often we look at something and we just automatically assign a value for a really long time and we think this has clearly got to be super valuable and when you get it evaluated you find out okay it's not actually worth all that much. Sometimes you take something and you think it might be worth something maybe I don't know and then you get it evaluated and you find out it's worth a whole lot more than you thought it was and what it looked like on the outside wasn't really the true story of what the whole thing really was and that was the case for one fisherman in the Philippines Back in 2016, he had found this shiny rock. It looked beautiful. It was big. So he stuck it under his bed as a, as a good luck charm. Thought, eh, maybe I'll go get it looked at. Maybe I'll go figure out what this thing actually is. And it's a good thing he did, and it did end up being lucky for him because it ended up being, oh, that's not what we want. Just kidding. No, I don't know what it's doing. John, you got to help me. Let's see. It did do to me what it does to Mark. No? Oh, I know what it did. Here we go. There we go. Now we'll see if it'll work. This is the world's largest pearl. So it was two feet long, weighed 75 pounds, and this guy who picked it up thinking it was just going to be some kind of good luck charm under his bed, it ended up being worth $100 million. That's pretty lucky. Um, Mark and Sarah have found some pretty good stuff at Goodwill, but nothing quite like this. You look at it, though, and it's like, okay, it's, it's pretty looking, I suppose. It's big. And um, you don't really get the full picture of what it is just by looking at the outside. You've got to figure out what is this thing really. You need to know more about it to find out the true value of what this thing is. So what we're going to do today, we're going to take a look in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 1, 15 through 20. Paul's going to give us a big picture of who Jesus is. Do you want me to just stick with the pulpit mic? I'll do that for now. I don't wander. So we're going to get a bigger picture of just who is this Jesus. Who, who is Jesus? He's not some mystical way out there guru type of person that we really can't relate to or get connected with. He isn't this guy. We've seen him before. So that's not who we're going to be talking about this morning. Who is this real Jesus? The last time I had a chance to preach and went through the book of Colossians, we looked at verses 9 through 14. And those verses ended with Paul talking about God taking us from the kingdom of darkness and transferring us into the kingdom of his beloved son, through whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. That's what God the Father has done for us, taking us from the kingdom of darkness and placed us into the kingdom of the beloved son. But who is the beloved son? We really need to know who this beloved son is. So why is he able to do that? Why can we have forgiveness through his blood? Well, we've got to find out just about more who Jesus is. He's not just a mere traveling teacher. He's not that soft, fuzzy, whatever that guy was, that um, stuff to Jesus that just kind of tells you these nice things that you want to hear when you push the right button. 
It's not who we're talking about here. And really, last week when I was going to preach, I intended to preach through not just 15 through uh, 20, like we're going to do today, but 15 through 23. But as I started working through this, point one became an entire sermon. So that's what we're getting today. This is point one of what you would have gotten last week, except last week as I was practicing, I went over an hour. So thank, thank goodness we're not going to go over an hour today. There's just so much to talk about when you come to this passage and understanding who Jesus is. And we're going to have to pick up on the rest of the passage later, which is why this is part one of two, because they're really, they need to go together, but there's not time to really put both together and do justice to both parts. So I don't know when part two will come. We'll send Mark on vacation again or something like that. But there's just so much to talk about in here because we have to understand who Jesus is. We have to know who he is if we're going to have a proper understanding of our own faith and if we're going to properly represent him to the world that's watching on. Because the world watching on has an idea of who Jesus is. They have an idea. The church has an idea of who Jesus is. But often we get mixed in with half-truths about who Jesus is ignorant thoughts about who Jesus is, because we don't quite have the whole truth ourselves. We're kind of basing it on things we thought we knew about Jesus that aren't quite true, or just straight-up lies. And sometimes the church doesn't help with that. I've grown up in church my whole life. My grandfather's a pastor. My dad's a pastor. Now I'm a pastor. And just growing up in that Sunday school and Awana and Good News Club environment, there's a lot of things we assume about Jesus or things that we mean really well when we sing a song a certain way or when we say something about Jesus. But it leads us to funny ideas about who Jesus is. We've got to be oh so careful about how we understand who Jesus truly is because the world is watching on. And often what we can do is unintentionally misrepresent Jesus for who he truly is not just who we think he is or who we've always seen him to be. We want a true picture because the world's watching. I had a friend a couple of years ago that I had grown up going to Camp Good News with. Uh, he grew up in a church, so a church, church kid, Sunday school kid, Camp Good News kid. He had a good, solid church background to have that side and that whole understanding of who is Jesus. But as I knew him through high school and through Christian Youth in Action and the older years of camp and all of that, saw him really kind of start to slide away from his Christian faith. It was something that wasn't quite so real to him anymore. And then he graduated, went on, joined the military, and just kind of wholesale walked away from the faith. So now he had the Sunday school understanding of who Jesus was, the church understanding of Jesus, but he also had the world's idea of who Jesus was and just a wholesale um, disdain and dislike and hatred for who Jesus is. So I never thought I'd see him again. We just walked very different paths in life and ran into him at the gym. So got talking to him and we decided we were going to catch up a little bit more. So we got together quite a few times and whether it was running or it was eating food, it was either working out or eating food, one or the other. Sometimes we did both. We get talking about what it is that I still believe and why he doesn't believe. And a lot of it came back to people doing things in Jesus' name, saying, how can people do those things in Jesus' name? How can they do that, the evil things that they do? And I had to remind him that just because somebody does something evil in Jesus' name doesn't mean that's what Jesus would have done. That doesn't properly represent who Jesus is. Same way that if I was to say that Pastor Mark hates beef stew, 
He thinks beef stew is neither safe for human nor animal consumption, and it would be cruelty to animals to feed something an animal beef stew. Therefore, if you eat beef stew, he would have me just not associate with you whatsoever because you make poor food choices. So therefore, I'm not going to see you again. Is that what Mark would have me to do? He doesn't like beef stew, so why wouldn't he want me to do that? Well, it'd be a total misrepresentation of who Mark really is and what he would have me to do. Okay, so Mark wouldn't have me to do that. Same way that a lot of people act in Jesus' name and are not properly representing who Jesus is. Those misconceptions can come from us. So we have to be so careful about truly understanding Jesus, truly understanding so we can share who he is to that world that's watching. So Colossians 1, 15 through 20 is going to help us get a bigger picture, a better picture of who he is. So let's go ahead and let's read Colossians 1, 15 through 20. It says this. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. In him all things hold together, and he is the head of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Mark always has water. I have to have coffee. If you're going to look at this passage, the one word that can really sum up who Jesus is is the word preeminent. He is before all things, he is above all things, he is greater than all things. Nothing comes close to who Jesus is. Nothing can even be compared to Jesus. He is above and beyond and so much greater than anything else that we can compare to in this world. And we're going to see three different aspects of who Jesus is as we go through this passage. First aspect we're going to see is that he's the image of the invisible God. He's the image of the invisible God. God is spirit. We can't see God. We can't see him with our eyes. We talk about this with Evie and Ada quite a bit just as we're talking through their devotions that we read uh, for them. Most mornings we're reading their devotions with them. Can't see God, but we can see Jesus. Hebrews 1.3 says this. He's the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. The exact imprint of his nature. An expositor's Bible commentary was really helpful for me. Um, just as I can continue to develop in preaching and just studying and just preparing a sermon like this and helping me understand there's two different aspects. When you look at this word image, there's two different aspects that the Greek really portrays here. One is likeness. And that's as if you're looking into a mirror. So when you look into a mirror, you're seeing a reflection. If you're looking in and looking at yourself, you see the reflection of yourself and you see, okay, yep, I did my hair this morning. I brushed my teeth. Oh man, I missed the baby smeared stuff on my face. How'd I miss that? So you're seeing yourself, a reflection of who you are in the mirror. Jesus is a reflection of the image of God, but it's a perfect reflection. It's not lacking anything. But just like when you're looking in a mirror, 
If Michael's looking in a mirror, you get a picture of Michael, but you can't really see inside and see the true Michael. You just see a reflection of who he is. It might be a perfect reflection, but you need to know more about that reflection. So not only does the Greek word give you the idea of a likeness or a reflection, but also a manifestation. Who is that person that's being reflected? So two aspects here. You understand what you see on the outside, but you also see something that's on the inside that's reflected that you can't see just in that reflection. So both are, are indicated there in that word image. This is that perfect expression and nature of God. Just as God is holy and perfect in every way, so Jesus is holy and perfect in every way. Perfect reflection of God. We can't see God the Father. He's a spirit. But we can see Jesus. And another set of passages that we can use to look at who Jesus is and how do we understand this image of who he is and the part that he plays is we're going to look at John 1, 1 through 18, and we're going to reference Genesis 1. So we're going to do a little bit of bouncing around in our Bibles this morning. Um, But Mark and I have talked about different books that we've thought are helpful through his preaching series as I'm preaching things that we want to highlight for you. For me, one of the books that was very helpful as I was studying through this and read it again, I read it through Bible College, was Knowing God by J.I. Packer. So this is one I didn't see back in our library, but it's easy to get, and I'd love to make this available for everyone because it is an incredibly good book in understanding just who God is. I've heard some uh, pastors and authors talk about the fact that if you're reading your Bible, that should be mostly what you read, but add this to it along with it so you can better understand what you're reading in God's Word, to understand Jesus, to understand God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. So I highly recommend Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Some of what I'm going to reference here falls back on how he interpreted and understands Jesus, how he sees him through Scripture. So here we see in John 1, 1 through 18, we're going to read that in just a moment in Genesis 1, that God is the creator. Jesus is the creator. When God is creating, what is he using to create? I'm going to wait till I hear somebody say it. What does he use to create things? His voice. Thank you, Michael. You even raised your hand. Good job. He just speaks it, and it is. He just says the word, and it happens. Doesn't need blueprints, doesn't need a permit, doesn't need help. He just says it, and it happens. His word is enough. His words are powerful. Packer said this, the word of God is God at work. The word of God is God at work. Okay, so let's come to John 1, 1 through 18 then, with that idea in mind. And it is 18 verses, but I'm going to read the whole thing for us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. 
But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And that verse, verse 18, is a very important verse to catch what is the connection between who's being talked about here. No one has ever seen God, God the Father. The only God, God the Son, who is at the Father's side. He, God the Son, has made him, God the Father, known. This is Jesus. That's who's being talked about here in John 1, 1 through 18. So we get a very clear picture of who Jesus is, a big picture of who Jesus is. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 15, the Word became flesh. That's Jesus. John's laying out a clear picture of the different aspects of Jesus. He's eternal, personal, and he's deity. We see that in verse 1. He's creator in verse 3. We're going to come back to this one again in a little bit more depth in the next point. He's a life giver and revealer of truth in verse 4. And finally, he's human in verse 15. That's how Packer brings out all of these things. There's a lot being taught about Jesus in those verses that then is reflected or echoed in Genesis 1 and reflected in Colossians 1, 15 through 20. There's a lot to Jesus that we learn in those verses. I'm going to add even in verse 17 that he's our Savior. He's our Savior. And he is the very will of God in action. As we see him here and we think about Genesis 1, where the word, he spoke with just his word, and things happened. Jesus is the word. He is the will of God in action here on earth. And we see all through the Gospels that he is only doing what the Father would have him do. You can find that all through Scripture and all through the Gospels. A couple of places here in John you can find that is in John 5.19 and verse 30, John 6.38, John 8.28 through 29. Just a few places where we see Jesus acting on behalf of the Father, executing his will here on earth. Not Jesus' will on his own but he is the word of God. He is God at work, working here in our present lives, working through his word. Okay, New Testament is not the only place, though, that we see Jesus. We see him all throughout the Old Testament as well, not just in prophecy, very clearly in prophecy, but we also see a physical manifestation of God the Son. It's called a theophany. We see Jesus show up in a couple of places. Two that stood out to me as I was thinking through this was in Genesis 18. We see Jesus show up as Abram is sitting at the door of his tent. He's sitting there, he's waiting, he's looking out, and he sees three visitors coming toward him. We find out later on in the passage that two of them are angels, and one is God the Son incarnate, pre-New Testament Jesus, coming to visit Abraham. Abraham, as was the tradition, he prepares a big feast. He takes care of them. That was what his responsibility was as a host there in that Middle Eastern culture, was to care for them and care for them well. So he cares for them. Then those two angels go on, and God the Lord Jesus, pre-incarnate Jesus, stays behind and talks to Abraham and says, here's what I'm about to do. So there's a pre-incarnate, pre-New Testament uh, picture and image 
and example of who Jesus is. We also see in Joshua where Jesus shows up. And I'm going to read that one for you because that one's really interesting. That shows you just a, a, another picture that we don't always think of Jesus. That's in Genesis, or Joshua 15, 13 through 15. Here's what it says. If I can find it. Excuse me, Joshua 5. That's why it didn't look right. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Where else in scripture do we see an angel or some kind of messenger from God coming to talk to someone and then that person to whom the messenger was sent goes to worship that messenger and that messenger receive the worship? Do we find that anywhere else? We don't find that anywhere else. It's always somebody coming to talk to, um, whether it's uh, the angel coming to talk to Mary or whatever it is. They're coming to talk to someone on God's behalf and they say, I'm just a messenger too. Don't worship me, worship God. This person, though, is receiving worship from Joshua. Who else does that? Only God does that. This is a pre-New Testament example of God the Son, a physical form of God the Son here. Again, acting on behalf of the Father. We always see him acting on behalf of the Father, completing his will. So this is Jesus. Again, it's so much bigger than we often think of. We know these pieces, but sometimes we don't connect those dots to see the bigger picture of who Jesus is. Okay, so he is so much bigger and so much more than we often give him credit for. And again, we already referenced, not only is he the image of God, but he's also the creator. Jesus is the creator. It's the firstborn of all creation that we see in verse 15. It simply means that he's preeminent. He's over all his creation. He was not only before his creation in that he is eternal, but he's also so much greater, so much grander than his creation. He's preeminent over his creation, superior to it. What we can't read into this when it says the firstborn of all creation is that he was a created being. Jesus could not be a created being and still be God because if he was created, he would have had to have a beginning. God does not have a beginning. If you take away the eternality of who Jesus is, he ceases to be God. If he ceases to be God, he can no longer be our Savior. So Jesus is not a created being. He's not the firstborn of creation in that he had a beginning, that God made him first and then everything else. He's preeminent over it. If we stray into the idea that Jesus was created, what we do is we've stepped into, um, say, Jehovah's Witness type of theology, where they say that Jesus was a created being who became God, which leads us to the, con to the conclusion that eventually we could become gods, and we know that's not the case. Jesus is eternal. He did not have a beginning, but he is so much greater and so much grander, and he was before his creation. He's preeminent. Okay, so now we've established that he's both preexistent to creation and superior to it, we can take in the next portion that he's the creator of all things. He wasn't just merely present at creation, but he was also instrumental in making it happen. He was active 
in it. For by him all things were created, both what we can see and what we can't see. All things were created through him and for him. John 1, 1 through 3 again. Another, again, just another good reason to look at that passage in connection with Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He is the one who was instrumental in creating all of those things. He was actively there at work. Uh, one of the old songs that came to mind as I was thinking through this is This Is My Father's World. How many of you remember that old song? Okay, good old song. I won't sing it for you. Mark might have tried to sing it for you, but I want you to enjoy the rest of this, so I'm not going to sing it for you. Um, but we used to sing that all the time in church. As a kid, still today, um, but as a kid, I loved thinking about nature. I loved thinking about the things that God made. I loved this song for that reason, thinking about the things that he made. And the one line uh, there at the beginning says this, rocks and trees and skies and seas, his hands, the wonders wrought. I had a book, though, that my parents had given me. I think it was a little devotional book talking about God as a creator. And I don't know if they wrote these words in there or if it was my interpretation of it, but this is how I always remembered that line of bats and bugs and snakes and slugs, the Lord God made them all. It wasn't exactly the correct way that that song was written, but it was catchy. And it's still how I sing it. Jenny, every time we've sung it uh, in the past, I always sing that, and Jenny rolls her eyes and jabs me with her elbow. Um, it just reinforced in my little mind that God was the creator. And we don't always think of Jesus, though as being the creator, as being the one who is present in that, actively working in that. Not only is he the one who is the creator, but we're also taught here that he's the sustainer. He is the one who is currently holding everything together. Not a single molecule is outside of his control. How comforting is that? Not a single molecule is outside of his control. He is actively at work holding all of these things together. I really appreciate that idea of him holding everything together when I'm riding my bike. There's a few of us that are cyclists that are a part of this church. And when I ride, I'm often going very fast downhill. I think the fastest I've hit is 56 miles an hour. So that's pretty quick on tiny little tires that look like that. And you don't quite get a full picture of how skinny those are until you're actually standing there holding one or looking at one. It's pretty thin. And I'm thankful that God is still holding all of these things together and holding the molecules of my tire and the molecules of the road surface together. Because if you crash going that fast, it's a big deal. So if God can hold those things together, how much do we forget that he holds everything else together in our lives? The big things, the little things. Sometimes there are little things that feel really big. Sometimes there are big things that just feel that much bigger. And we think, God, are you in control of this? Are you holding this together? Because it really doesn't feel like it. But God is the creator. He's the sustainer. He didn't just start creation going and spinning out into space saying, good luck. Hope you do okay. That's not what God did. He's currently actively in the process of holding everything together, just as much as holding this planet in its orbit as he is keeping the ceiling above us. He is actively at work. We don't always feel that, though, because here we are in a body that is controlled and has to deal with the effects of sin in a world that has to deal with the effects of sin. When God created the world, it was perfect. Because sin entered, it has affected every single thing. And we groan and we wait to be redeemed, that these bodies will no longer have to deal with the effects of sin. And that's what Paul talks about over in Romans 8, 18 through 23. I'll read that one for us as well. 
Here's what, here's what Paul says in Romans 8. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons and the redemption of our bodies. God's going to redeem all of this, creation and our bodies. We groan. The older I get, the more I groan. I'm only 31, but I get out of, you know, I stand up from off the floor and I groan. Um, some of you are a little bit older than me, and it's more of a reality for you than it is for me at this point. But our bodies someday aren't going to have to deal with these pains anymore. We're not going to have to deal with thinning hair. We're not going to have to deal with any of those things anymore. Our bodies will be redeemed. Not only is our soul redeemed, our soul is justified in God's sight, but some days our, our body is going to be redeemed. This whole creation will be redeemed. And we long for that, to no longer have to suffer in this world. Even just walking out the door this morning, I bent over to get something and my back twinged. I was like, oh dear, okay. Let's see if I can even stand here. I would have had to sit on a stool and Brian shaking his head, look like one of those hipster pastors on a stool without a pulpit. I don't fit that. That doesn't work. Someday we're not going to have to worry about that. I don't have to worry about my back giving out just before I come to stand up here because our bodies will be redeemed. God is actively, currently at work in his creation. He didn't just start it going. He is sustaining it. He is holding it all together. Okay, so not only is he holding it all together, but because of who he is as the image of God, because of who he is as the creator, he is able to do so much more than just keep this world spinning. Because of who he is, Colossians teaches us that he is the head of the church. He's the head of the church. He's the one who's over it. He's the one who's controlling it. He's the one who's guiding it. But why is he able to be that? He's the image of God. He's the creator. But what else does he need to be to be able to control all of this and lead all of this and hold it all together and be our reconciler? He also needs to be this. He also needs to contain the fullness of God. And the fullness of God dwells within Jesus. So it says in verse 19, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You see, Jesus wasn't just a man. One of the heresies that Paul is combating as he's writing in Colossians is the thought that Jesus was just a man. Jesus wasn't just a man. He was man. He was 100% man, but he's also 100% God. The fullness of God dwells within him. This is one of those concepts that growing up in the church is kind of deceptively simple. It's sometimes just hard to grasp that idea that he's 100% God, the fullness of God is contained in him. Because again, this is one of those places where we can easily bring in those preconceived ideas that we have about Jesus and what he's like and how he is and how he acts and how we should understand him. And it's easy to just kind of walk over this without really thinking about it. And Jenny and Jana and Linda and I, and even Michael, he helped out in Good News Club. We saw many times in Good News Club as we'd ask a question and we'd say, you know, maybe the answer would be Jesus or maybe the answer was God, but often kids would say God and Jesus as if it was two different, two different beings, two different 
uh, individuals, and they had to have both of them there to have the answer correct. And we'd spend a long, long time, Michael remembers, we talk about the Trinity. We talk a lot about the Trinity, and what does that mean? But that's a hard one to grasp. The fullness of God in Jesus, the fullness of God in the Father, the fullness of God in the Son, the fullness of God in the Holy Spirit. That's a big concept for kids to grasp. That's a big concept for adults to grasp, to try to fully understand what does that mean. Can I completely, perfectly explain that to you? I can't because I still have a finite mind. Someday we'll explain it, we'll understand it, because we'll see him face to face. But I can't fully explain the Trinity to you because there is no physical thing in this world to be able to relate to the Trinity because nothing compares to who God is. There's lots of examples we try to use. As adults, we think abstractly. Kids think more concretely. But still, as abstract thinkers, we like to go back to a concrete object to create our abstract idea around. So we still like those pictures. We still like those things to be able to hold on to, to help us explain something. And one of the things that I often use to be able to explain the Trinity was water. Maybe you've heard that example, that God, uh, the Holy Spirit, God, the Father, God, the Son, the Trinity, it's like water. You can have water in three different forms. You can be a liquid, a solid, or a vapor. The problem with this and where this falls apart is that you can't have all three being all three things simultaneously. You can have a liquid in this hand, you can have a solid in this hand, and you can have vapor coming up over here, but they cannot be all three things at the same time. But the Trinity is. Jesus contains the fullness of God. God the Father contains the fullness of God. God the Holy Spirit contains the fullness of God. There's no picture that we can give in this life that fully represents who he is, fully explains everything that Jesus is. It's difficult to be able to grasp that. The listeners that were there in Jesus' day didn't fully grasp the idea of Jesus was everything that he said he was. The Pharisees didn't get it. The crowd watching on didn't get it. If anybody should have understood it, it should have been the disciples because they were with Jesus all the time for three years. They should have been able to get an idea of who Jesus was. But they didn't fully understand, and we see that show up in Luke where Jesus is teaching the people on the side of the lake, and there are so many people crowding around him that he says, let's get in a boat and go out into the lake a little bit. So he steps into Peter's boat. They go out into the lake just a little bit, and he continues to preach, continues to teach the people. When he's done preaching, he says, Peter, throw your net in overboard, and let's catch some fish. Peter says, Jesus, we fished all night long and didn't catch anything. Jesus says, throw your net in. So it compels him. He throws his net in, pulls out his net, and it is full of huge fish. And Peter realizes this isn't just some good teacher who's great at fishing. If somebody's great at fishing, you don't respond the way that Peter does, and that Peter falls down in front of Jesus, and he says, depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. If Jesus is just a man, if Jesus is just a good fisherman, Peter had no right responding that way, but he realizes Jesus is so much more than just that teacher standing there in front of him. He gets a glimpse of Jesus containing the fullness of God. He doesn't fully understand it because we have the rest of the Gospels and we, we see that he doesn't fully get it yet. He does now, but he didn't then. We see the disciples again as they're going across the Sea of Galilee. They get in a boat. They're going across that lake. Jesus, being fully man, is tired, so he lays down in the back of the boat and falls asleep. 
They go across that lake and a big storm comes. And as they're rowing and fighting that storm, many of them were fishermen. They knew what they were doing with the boat. They knew that lake. They knew what they needed to do to get safely to the other side. And they wake up Jesus saying, don't you care that we're going to drown? There's no hope for them. They're lost. They're going to drown. And they think, Jesus, you don't even care that we're going to die. Jesus gets up and what does he do? He speaks to the wind and the waves. He says, peace, be still. And it happens just like that. Again, the word of God in action, controlling creation, and it stops just like that. And he turns to the disciples and says, where's your faith? And they were afraid before, but now they're really afraid because they realize who is this that is in the boat with us, that even the wind and the waves obey him. They get a glimpse of who Jesus really is, the fullness of God that is contained within him. Just a glimpse, because again, we see throughout the rest of the Gospels, they don't fully get it. They don't completely get it. As Pentecost comes and the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within them, they again get bigger and bigger pictures and understanding of the fullness of God in Jesus. But because of who Jesus is, because he is the image of God, he's the creator, because the fullness of God dwells in him, he's able to do what we find in verse 20. Here's what it says in verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Because Jesus is who he is, he is able to be our reconciler. He's able to reconcile us to God. Naturally, we are enemies of God. That's who we are. Apart from Christ, in our sin, we are enemies of God. Romans 5.10 talks about that. We are God's enemy. But we're reconciled through his blood, through his sacrifice, his giving of his life on our behalf. We are reconciled. God, in his righteous anger against us, as enemies of God are reconciled through Jesus Christ. He does that because the fullness of God dwells within him. He is the only one capable, the only one possible to take the punishment for our sin. He fully, completely takes that weight and that burden of the punishment of our sin, took that upon himself when he died on the cross, gave his blood, and made peace with God for us on our behalf. There is no part of salvation that we pay for on our own by our good works or by our actions. The Bible says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his goodness, he saved us. I think I, think I got that one right. You're going to look that up later and correct me. Somebody will. It's his work. It's not our work. So often we have a low view of who Jesus is and a very high view of who we are when we think that we can earn our salvation, that somehow I'm going to pay for this part over here. This little, tiny, forgotten, nobody else sees this piece. I'm going to take care of that myself because I feel like I have to do something to earn that. I have to earn my salvation. I have to participate in this, but you can't. The only reason Jesus could is because he's all of this, all that we have just talked about. The fullness of God dwelt within him. That's how he could pay for your sin. If you're to pay for your sin, you have to contain all of that as well. We can't do that. We cannot pay for our sin. He paid for our sin on our behalf. He is our reconciler. He made peace with God. We get to enjoy that peace when we accept 
his forgiveness, when we accept his sacrifice on our behalf, we accept that free gift of salvation. He did that work for us. He did that work for you. We have peace with him. Jesus is so much more than just that uh, stuffed Jesus character we saw there at the beginning. Jesus is so much more than just some mystical out there guru that doesn't quite relate to our life and doesn't quite fit with where we are and we're left wondering, what does he mean? Jesus is so, so much more than that. But it's so important that we understand who he is as we see him here in scripture. It is so important to have a proper theology or Christology is the understanding, the study of Jesus. So important we understand him for who he is, not just who we think him to be, not just who we've always understood him to be, but who he actually is. Because there's a world watching on, and they're getting an idea of who Jesus is when they look at you, and they see your life. What Jesus are they seeing? Are they seeing a kind of half-truth idea of who Jesus is? Are they seeing your life in total contradiction to what you say Jesus is like and yet you're a reflection of who Jesus is? One author that I read talked about Christians as being parables of Jesus. We're making an unknown thing known. We are making him known to the world. What are they seeing then in your life? Are you reflecting the true Jesus? Because just like the example of my friend there at the beginning, he had both pictures. He had both views. Having been in the church and been in Camp Good News, and between the church and Camp Good News, sometimes I feel like it's almost like a, you know, it's a pre-Bible college kind of understanding of who Jesus is because of the amount of study that goes into each of those programs, whether it's Sunday school or Camp Good News. Camp Berea would be the same thing. It's a lot of study. He had both of those, and yet he still walked away from all of it and got into what the world would show him, and he saw the total opposite of that because he saw too many Christians representing a different Jesus. Too many Christians not representing the Jesus that is the image of God, a perfect reflection and the perfect character and nature of who God is. Jesus as the creator currently actively at work within this world, not just far out there somewhere no longer involved, but currently actively sustaining and holding everything together. He didn't see Christians representing Jesus as the fullness of God containing all of God within him, being in some way connected to God, but you couldn't really explain that or understand that. That's why we need to understand God's word. That's where Paul is going to go with this as we move into the next portions of Colossians. And next time, we're going to look at everything that Jesus is, as Paul has just gone through to explain how we got from being from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. Now, who is that beloved son? That's 15 through 20. So then 21 through 23 is going to talk about what he did as our reconciler, and it builds a framework for us for where we go with the rest of the book of Colossians. But we have to understand who Jesus is. God felt that was important. He's all through scripture. Paul felt that was important. He took a lot of time to explain and connect the dots of who is this Jesus. So important for us this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you for your son. I thank you that we can know him. There are parts that take study. There are parts that are hard to understand here in this body, in this mind, that is still affected by sin. There are parts that um, we step back and say we can accept that on faith because I don't see all the pieces, Father, but we know you are a good God. You're a good Father. We thank you for your son, and he's our reconciler. We don't have peace with you without Jesus. 
So we thank you for all that he is and all that we will continue to understand him to be. As we look into your word, we do our best to study as one approved, rightly handling your word, Father. So we thank you as we go from here, as we continue to to finish in worship together through song. Um, Thank you that you're glorified in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand with us. You are here. 